I'm really excited about the next few weeks of messages because once again Paul shifts gears in the book of Galatians. And just by way of review, because I think it's so important to bring these things out every time that we preach, just so you'll know where you're at in the context. But in the book of Galatians, we find that our, the theme here is our liberty in Christ. And we're actually going to be uh, at the theme verse here in our text this morning, which is chapter 5 and verse 1, where he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And in the context, Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian believers uh, because they have allowed false teachers to come in and add works to the gospel of grace. You, you cannot mix those two things. They are mutually exclusive. You're either saved by the grace of God or you're saved by your own self-effort. But you, it, it can't be a combination of the two. The word grace itself means unmerited, undeserved favor with God, whereas works tries to deserve the favor of God. So those things cannot coexist. And he's uh, very passionate about this. These Judaizers have come in and added works to grace. And specifically, in this Jewish context, what they've done is they've come in and they've essentially said, well, yeah, sure, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but we're the only way to Jesus. You, you have to become an Old Testament Jew. And even to these Gentile male converts, they were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to even be saved. You can't even be saved without that. And so, as I've said every week, we need to be careful of those groups that tell you, yes, Jesus is the only way to heaven, but our church, our priesthood, our group, whatever the, they say, is the only way to Jesus. That's, that's very dangerous. And, and none of these things we see today are new. They go way back, and Paul was even dealing with it uh, in the early church. And for the first four chapters, as we've walked through, we've seen this clearly over about the last 15 weeks, Paul destroys their arguments about salvation being by the works of the law. He, I mean, just obliterates it. I don't want to go through all that, but the bottom line is that if you're going to trust your own good works, if you're going to trust the keeping of the law, you have to keep the whole law or it's not going to save you because whatever laws you break, that's only going to serve to condemn you. Even by the Ten Commandments, God's minimum standard of human behavior. If you've ever told a lie, that makes you a liar. He has to punish that. If you've ever stolen anything, you're a thief. He has to punish that. If you've ever put anything before God, which we all have, that's idolatry. There's a punishment for that. If you've taken God's name in vain in any way, shape, or form, that's blasphemy. God has to judge that. If you've ever looked at a person with lust in your heart, that's adultery even in your heart. God has to punish that because He's the righteous judge. So even by the Ten Commandments this morning, who could stand before God and say, look God, look what I've done. Look what I've done. He said, oh yeah, look what you've done. Some people say, well, only God can judge me. That'll scare you. I've said that before. He's destroyed their arguments, walked through line upon line, and he's defended justification by faith alone in Christ. And in the last two chapters, these chapters 5 and 6 that we're starting today, he changes gears again. And whereas we saw his pastoral heart last week for these Galatian believers, he wasn't just interesting winning an argument. In the last two chapters, he deals with the implications 
of what our belief system is. And most specifically, what we believe about salvation. And so, that's so important. This is so important. The implications of what we believe. This is important for two reasons. First of all, because our belief determines our behavior. Our doctrine determines our direction. So important here. You you don't just believe something on an island. There's no such thing as a nonconformist. What you believe determines how you behave what direction you're heading in. But the second reason that this is so important is because, once again, Paul understands the next argument that these Judaizers are going to come up with. It's an argument that I've heard my whole life against what I'm about to preach this morning. He understood what their next argument was going to be, and he's getting out ahead of it. And the Judaizers' argument is going to be this. Okay, Paul, let's just say you're right. Let's just say that salvation is by grace through faith just like you preached, just like the apostles preached, just like Jesus preached. Uh, Let's just say that that's true, that salvation is by grace through faith and and it's not of your works. You know what that's going to lead to, Paul? That's going to lead to people living a sinful life. It's going to give people license to do what they want to. Or as the old saying says, Jesus paid for our sin, let's get our money's worth. That is carnal human reasoning, and it's as bad as it can possibly, possibly get. He deals with this. Uh, The the thought process is, in the mind of these Judaizers is, if someone can sin all they want to and still go to heaven, what's to stop them from doing so? Hey, let's party. Let's live it up. We're going to heaven anyway. The thought is, what motivation could they possibly have for wanting to live for the Lord if they're not worried about hell. Now, in general, it's human nature for most people to choose security uh, over freedom. This is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. You know, very few people would agree with Patrick Henry's famous statement, give me liberty or give me death. Most people wouldn't go for that. Uh, People submit to tyrannical governments because it offers them a measure of what they would consider to be security. People submit to tyrannical religion and cults because it gives them a checklist of things that they can do to earn their salvation, be happy, and have a prosperous life, etc. But religion says do. Grace says done. Religion says try. Grace says trust. It's two conflicting messages. It cannot be the same thing. And what I'm talking about, what I'm preaching about specifically this morning is the fear of grace or being afraid of grace. You see, the Judaizers were afraid of grace. They thought that if somebody was just saved by grace apart from their works, they would have no motivation to live for God. It was completely false and completely wrong. And we're going to see that in these two chapters, or as we go through these two chapters. I, I'm not preaching through two chapters this morning, so don't, don't worry about that. But um, with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. Uh, I'll begin in chapter 5. We'll go through the first 12 verses. Galatians 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in a liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to the whole law. 
Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith with which worketh by love. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord, that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for salvation that only comes in Christ. Lord, it's not of our works. Lord, it can never be of our works. If we could be good enough to earn salvation, you would have never had to come in the first place. And God, I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self. My, I'm kind of scatterbrained this morning, and uh, even more so than normal, and I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self. Fill me your Holy Spirit. God, if somebody's lost this morning, God, maybe they have trusted their own works, their own self-effort. God, I pray that you would reveal uh, their lost condition even before you this morning, God, that they would uh, repent of their self-effort and their, uh, their sin. God, they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them. Uh, Father, just fill me your Holy Spirit and help me, hide me behind the shadow of the cross, that I would say what needs to be said, Lord, that I would not say what does not need to be said. And I pray that your word would come alive in our hearts and minds. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're looking at the thought of being afraid of grace. And, you know, the argument, as I mentioned, the Judaizers will make in these coming chapters is that if a person is only saved by grace through faith apart from works, they'll have no motivation to do any works. But what we're going to see really more so next week and the week after than today. But what we're going to see is, it's actually the ones that are truly saved by grace that have a desire to serve God. They're born again. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their heart. They have peace with God. And out of a grateful heart and a love for God, they want to serve Him. Uh, Whereas it's the Judaizers, the legalists that get burned out. They're weighed down not only by their sin but by this extra bondage heaps, heaped on them that doesn't remove their sin. It's a double whammy. They're the ones that get burned out. They're, and even their acts of righteousness are only superficial. There's nothing going on on the inside. But the question that I want to wrestle with this morning is, what do we lose when we're afraid of grace? I'll ask you too this morning, are you afraid of grace? Are you afraid of liberty? Have you put your trust and faith in a system that gives you things that you can do and check off and get pats on the back because there's security in that? Are you afraid of grace or have you been saved by grace? Before I get to the first point, I need to put a preface here. We need to understand this. We need to understand that Paul is speaking to two groups of people here. He is speaking to the saved Galatians. He calls them brethren nine times in the book of Galatians. He believes that they are saved. The second group, though, he understands that in a group as large as he's speaking to, there are lost people in that group. Maybe they made a profession of faith. Maybe they uh, go into the title of church member. But they're not saved. They've never been saved by grace and they've been duped by these false teachers. 
And so the message that he sends needs to be taken in one of those two contexts. So understand that. I think that's important, and we'll see that as we go along. But each of us must examine our hearts and lives and determine whether or not we fit into these two categories, or if we're living a victorious Christian life. So what do we lose when we're afraid of grace? Well, number one, we lose liberty. Most specifically, our liberty in Christ. Uh, Look at verse 1 again. He said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, up to this point in our study, we've seen that Paul has compared a works-based salvation to being under a guardian. We, We mentioned the fact that wealthy Roman families would assign a slave to basically raise their children, and and that guardian uh, would would teach them uh, academics, athletics, uh, table etiquette, whatever the case may be, and whenever they... Uh, whenever the child's performance wasn't up to snuff, uh, it wasn't uncommon for that guardian to slap them or beat them, scourge them, whatever, to get them in line. And, and we talked about what a burdensome thing that would be to, to walk around and have somebody looking over your shoulder 24-7. It's going to pop you or beat you if you do something wrong. That's what Paul compared the law to. Because there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. Laws of do, laws of don't, laws of ceremony, laws of government. Uh, you know, we could go on and on about that. Nobody's ever been able to keep that. And, and God doesn't just demand goodness where, you know, you, your good works outweigh your bad works. He, he demands absolute perfection. And none of us could ever achieve that. God cannot allow one sin to go unpunished. He can't allow one sin into heaven, not one. And, and so... Um, He's compared trying to live under law to being under that guardian. What a burdensome thing that would be. And and he compared salvation to Christ to where uh, between the ages of 14 and 17, uh, they would have a coming-of-age ceremony for that child. And and part of that ceremony, they would be released from uh, the guardian. And he compared that to being released from the bondage of sin and the law to being free and forgiven in Christ Jesus. Paul has compared... Uh, being under law to being the son of a slave. We talked about the difference between Isaac and Ishmael and between their mothers, Sarah and Hagar, and he, he talked about that. But here, he compares it to being in a yoke of bondage, to being under the law is like being in a yoke of bondage. Now, we're not talking about like an egg yoke. I'll have a problem with that, amen? I mean, scrambled, over easy, over, it doesn't matter to me. We're not talking about that. It's talking about like a yoke of oxen that you would put in a team of oxen and plow the fields. And it was a, it's a burdensome thing. It's a weighty thing. It's a laborious thing. And, but what we find is that while the yoke of the law that only brings about sin and death and condemnation is a weighty thing, the Bible tells us that Christ's yoke is easy and His burden is light. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so how is, how is a yoke heavy under the law, and yet that same yoke is easy through grace and faith in Christ? Well, the answer is simple, because He's the one that's carrying the weight, 
uh, when I studied for this, and actually I found this years ago, but I was able to incorporate it this morning. When I was studying this passage, I actually preached out of that Matthew passage at a funeral. And, uh, but in the context... Christ is inviting people who are tired of their sin. They're tired of the weight of their sin. They're tired of the effort to relieve themselves of the burden of that sin and the guilt of that sin. And He's saying, Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And the reason that His yoke is easy, as I mentioned, because He's carrying the weight. And here's what I found years ago when I studied this. When a farmer wanted to train a young oxen, he would yoke him up with an older, stronger, more experienced ox. And as those two oxen, the young one that was in training, and the old seasoned ox, when they would walk together in that yoke and they would plow the field, uh, the, the younger oxen thought he was doing the work. He learned to walk in a straight line. He learned to get with the program. But the older ox was the one that was pulling all the weight. That young oxen couldn't bear the weight by himself. He couldn't do it. That's what happens so many times. I think somebody gets saved by grace through faith in Christ, and for a long time they think they did something. I, I did for a long time. But I, knew, I know now God saved me, and I had nothing to do with it. It was all of grace. But what I love about this too, I found out that a lot of times if there was an oxen that had an injury, you know, maybe he had broken a leg or something, he had to sit out for a while, and he had to get it, you know, just had to lay up until it healed. Well, when it came time to start plowing again, he was weak from laying around. He hadn't done a whole lot, and he had to learn to put pressure on that leg again. And what they would do once again was yoke that, that healing ox up to a strong ox that could bear the weight. And isn't that just like Jesus Christ? Not only does He bear the weight of our sin, not only does He bear the weight of our salvation, but He's with us in the greatest trials of our life when we could never hold up under the weight. I've heard it said many times that God will never give us more than we can handle, but that's not true. He does because we learn to lean on Him and become dependent upon Him. We would, listen, if we could handle everything ourselves, we'd never even bother to pray. <laughs> we'd never bother to ask Him for anything. But His burden is easy, and His yoke is light. And uh, it's Christ that carries all of that. Now, in verse 2, Paul gives a very specific way in which these Galatian men specifically were being entangled again by this yoke of bondage. Look at verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. These Judaizers were telling these Gentile converts, these men, they said, hey, listen, you know, I'm, I know what Paul said about the whole you know, being saved by grace through faith in Christ and all that. That's good. But you've got to be circumcised for it to take effect. You've got to go, and I'm telling you, we don't have to get graphic about this. That's not an easy, painless thing to do. What a burden that would have been. And it didn't add anything to them. It didn't add to their salvation. It didn't add to their sanctification. It didn't make them any holier. It didn't draw them close to God. It was just something to appease the legalist. That's it. And I know that in our context, we don't deal with that specifically, but man... How many things in our day are added to simple salvation in Christ, the simple gospel of grace? Um, let me say this. People would do anything if they are afraid of their eternal destination. The problem is that there's not anything we can do that will make us right with God. 
As I've said before, good works can never erase broken laws. They can't do it. And, but here's the thing. If you're fully confident in Christ and the cross, you don't have to be enslaved by that nonsense. Listen, we don't need the Catholic Mass or the Confession or the Cardinals or the Popes. We, listen, we don't need a priesthood. We don't need temple work. We don't need our name in a certain church membership. We don't need to run ourselves ragged like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. We don't need to yield to legalistic standards of righteousness even within the Baptist church in order to be right with God. All those things are added to the simple gospel of grace. So you better be careful about those people. They give lip service to Jesus Christ. They give lip service to the gospel. They give lip service to grace, but at the end of the day, they believe they are saved by what they do. As if somehow, when we stand before God, and He decides to let us into heaven, and we give the Lord Jesus Christ a high five and say, yeah, we did it. No, sir. We're going to fall on our faces like the wretches that we are and thank Him for saving us by His grace through His own blood. That's it. That's it. Listen, we don't have to punish our bodies like the Hindus. We don't have to find our salvation in a certain baptism or, or a creed or a confession or a certain checklist of do's and don'ts. We don't have to do that. When you're secure in Christ, you won't be fooled by those things. He, listen, Christ already defeated sin and death. Christ defeated sin and death, and He can save us to the uttermost, and He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. Just like we sang this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's His righteousness imputed to us. That's not our righteousness before Him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What are you putting your faith and trust in this morning? We lose our liberty when we're afraid of grace. When you're afraid to put trust in your eternal soul completely into the hands of God and you trust Him and the salvation of Jesus Christ, if you're afraid of doing that, you will be miserable. Miserable. But number two, I've got to move quickly this morning. Y'all are not amen and fast enough. Number two, not only do you lose your liberty, but you lose your livelihood. And by that word, I'm not just talking about our income. I'm talking about our outlook. You're going to see what I'm talking about here in verse 3. He says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now... Paul uses, he just used a term about being in the yoke of bondage, of slavery. But he uses another term here to describe those working in order to earn their own salvation. He uses the word debtor. Now, I, I was running this over in my mind, and maybe you can correct me afterwards, preferably. I couldn't think of a single instance where being a debtor is a good thing. It means you owe something to somebody. And I don't know about you, I don't want to owe anybody anything. A debtor is a burdensome thing. Uh, it means that you owe something. And usually in a legal sense, uh, you know, think about some of the 
some of the debts we have. I thought about a mortgage. I mean, isn't that just a blessing every month when you get that bill in the mail? Isn't that wonderful? Or if you set it up on automatic draft, they just take it without asking, you know. Or uh, the car payment. We just, and we just got our van paid off a few months ago. It's such a great feeling. I'm going to drive that thing until the wheels fall off of it. Then I'm going to tape a new set of wheels on. We're going to drive it some more. Or, uh, you know, some folks get themselves into a gambling debt. Or, or, or you heard the, the saying, you know, when somebody is convicted of a crime and they go to prison, they are serving their debt to society. I'm sure you've heard that. And so a debt is a burdensome thing. And any time that you're living your life with a debt, you feel it, don't you? Like, like there's a weight there. And so this is the comparison, this is the illustration he's using concerning our sin debt, concerning the debt that we owe to God that we could never pay off. We could never pay it. We're talking about a sin debt. Proverbs 22 and verse 7, it says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So the borrower is a slave to the lender. I can't call up my mortgage company and say, hey, big boy, I don't feel like paying my bill this month. They're going to say, hey, big boy, hope you like living on the street. I can't do that. It, it's, it's there. It's, it's got to be dealt with. And so it's the same thing with our sin. And, and here's what we cannot miss. Man, you cannot miss this this morning. But any kind of works-based religion, especially as it pertains to the cults, but I would say every type of works-based religion, um, they, they teach that salvation is for rent. I thought about this when it says borrower is servant to the lender. You say, what do you mean by that? Salvation is for rent. In other words, salvation is never really settled. It, doesn't, it never belongs to you. It, it could be taken from you at any time, and if you don't make the monthly payments on time, you're definitely in trouble. Salvation is just for rent in a work salvation. And... <clears throat> If you don't believe that Christ and what He did was enough to save you, you'll be attempting to pay God back your whole life. And you can't do it. You can't do it. That's a debt you could never pay. And even if you... Now listen to this. Even if you could pay that debt back, even if you could get to a place in your life where you had done enough good to appease the wrath of a holy and just God, how would you know it? Like, at what point could you ever get to and say, okay, I'm good, I've done enough. I'm here, I've arrived, you know, if, I, if, my, if my heart stopped today, we're good. How would you get to that point? Whenever I talk to somebody who teaches a works-based religion, um, I usually do ask these questions. I'm going to do it at the fair over and over and over and over again. I'm going to ask them, you think you're a good person? Yeah, I think so. Well, by what standard would you say that you're a good person? Well, I'm a faithful friend, I'm a loyal this, and the other go down the list. And I said, let me ask you, I said, you know, the Bible actually has a test to know whether you're a good person, to know whether you're good enough in the sight of God. They go, really? I said, yeah. You ever heard Ten Commandments? You ever told a lie? Well, I've told little white lies. Oh, but you never told any bad lies. Oh, you know, they make excuses, but they understand they're not holy. They're not righteous. What do you do to pay for that? There's a sin debt there. God is the holy and righteous judge. He has to judge that. He has to deal with that. And so if you don't believe in what Christ did to you, uh, did for you, then how could you ever know that you've done enough? And this is, man, this is, 
incredible to me. But I think that one of the most burdensome things about a works-based salvation is that a person can't even know if they've done enough until they die. Think about that. I ask him, well, have you, have you done enough? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I hope so. Well, could you get to a place, could you ever get to a place where you knew for sure? No. That's not good news. That's not good news at all. The good news is that we can know that we're saved. We can know these things because of what Jesus Christ did, His death and His burial and His resurrection for our sin. Jesus is enough. That's it. In verse 4, Paul again reiterates why it's so useless to try to appease God's justice through the works of the law. He says in verse 4, uh, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. Now this term does not mean that a person can lose their salvation. It just does not. You have to completely, number one, ignore the whole of Scripture uh, and you have to take this out of context to make that fit. He's not saying that, oh, now you were saved and now, you, now you're not saved. You've fallen away from grace. It literally says you are, present tense, fallen from grace. What it means is, if you're trusting your good works to save you, you are falling short of grace because only grace can save you. That's what he's saying. Not you've fallen away, but you've fallen short. Uh, you know, certainly a message of somebody losing their salvation would never be found in the book of Galatians. It, it flies contrary to everything that Paul has said to this point. So understand that. Uh, I think it's important to point that out. But uh, think about it like this. Talk about legal terms because sin is a transgression of God's law. It's a, it's a legal offense against God. You know, but, but think about if a, if a policeman, I know this has never happened to you, nor would it ever happen to you. Let's just say you got pulled over by a cop, you're, you're speeding. You're breaking the law. Let's just say you were doing 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. And he pulls you over, and he's writing out the ticket, and he's got you dead to rights, he got you on, uh, you know, the gun. I mean, he's got the evidence. And uh, as he's writing this ticket out, you say, Well, officer, I know you got me dead to rights. I know I, I, know I was wrong this time, and I broke the law, but I want you to know in, in every other area, I'm doing really good. I haven't killed anybody. You know, haven't held up a convenience store at gunpoint. You know, what do you think he's going to say in that situation? He's going to be laughing at you, and he's going to write you a ticket anyway with a smile on his face because as Warren Wiersbe said, no amount of obedience can make up for even one act of disobedience. And the problem is that people think they're going to stand before God and they're going to say, well, God, look at all these, look at all these good things that I did and you know, I, I helped little ladies across the street. I, I worked at a soup kitchen. I gave to the church. I, I volunteered for charity. And he's going to say, what does that have to do with the fact that you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterous idolater? How does that erase those things? Well, God, look at all the things that I didn't do over here. What does that have to do with the fact that you're a thieving? I mean, we can go down the list again. I think you get the point. It, it's not about getting to heaven and have God weigh our good and bad works. It's about our sin being atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When Christ was on that cross, He was wearing our sin, and God the Father placed our sin on Him. He bore the, our iniquity, is what Isaiah 53 says. 
And while he was wearing our sin in his body on the tree, God the Father poured his wrath for that sin on him. That debt was paid for. That way the cross satisfies both the justice of God and magnifies the love of God. All that's wrapped up in the cross. And without the wrath and justice of God, the cross doesn't even make any sense. What did Jesus die such a horrible death to save us from? Paul is saying that if you're trusting the works of the law to save you, you better keep the whole thing. What an impossible burden. This is what Paul meant when he said you're falling from grace. You're falling short of grace if you're trusting that. And the yoke of false religion takes away our livelihood. And when we're afraid of grace, it takes away our liberty, it takes away our livelihood. But thirdly, I've got, I've got two more relatively short ones and I'm done. The third thing that we lose when we're afraid of grace is love. Love, and I would say most specifically the motivation of love. Look at verse 5. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. We ought to underline that phrase, that faith worketh by love. And so in verse 5, Paul states that our hope for righteousness, and, and he's talking about full salvation in Christ. I am completely saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm fireproof. But this body is still Adamic in nature. This body has to be redeemed. And when I get my new body in heaven, it will be. Sinless. Never to, never to even be tempted again. Uh, but he's talking about our hope for that ultimate perfect righteousness is in Christ. And listen, if, if you live a life without hope, that's a horrible existence. If you don't have hope for the future, if you don't have hope that you're actually going to be uh, in eternity with God, that's, there's no hope in that. That's a hopeless existence. And we lose hope when our hope is in ourselves. Now, when we're without hope, it hinders our worship to God and it hinders our love for neighbor. Without hope for the future, what's the point? Listen to this. This is the reason, right here, what we're talking about. This is the reason why you don't ever hear about atheist hospitals, atheist orphanages, atheist mission teams or Peace Corps. Have you ever heard of an atheist hospital? I've been to plenty of Baptist hospitals. I've seen Methodist hospitals. You go on down the list. I've never heard of an atheist hospital. Why is that? Because there's no hope for the future. What does it matter? We're all going to take an eternal dirt nap. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If you're helping your, if you're stopping what you're doing in your own life, if you cease from your own ambitions to help your suffering neighbor, you're just wasting your life. Because it's all you're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic right before it goes down. What does it matter? There's no hope for the future. Why ease the suffering of our neighbor? Who cares? But in verse 6, it says that for those who are saved, our motivation is love. You want to know why people that are saved by grace through faith in Christ are going to work for Jesus Christ and going to have a desire to live for Him? It's because they are motivated by love. It just said there, right there in the text in black and white that faith worketh by love. Listen, Christ accomplished my salvation. I don't have to work for it. I can just worship Him for accomplishing it on my behalf. Works-based religion robs us of the ability to really worship God because it makes people too busy working for their salvation. How can you worship a God 
who didn't actually accomplish salvation. How can you worship a God like that? That, that basically said, okay, well, you know, I, I did enough to give you an opportunity, but, you know, here's the baton, and you go the rest of the way, and we'll be high-fiving at the finish line. What kind of a God is that? What kind of a weak excuse for a God is that? That He would go to the cross and die such a horrible death and raise from the dead and accomplish nothing. That's not a God we can worship. That's not a God we can worship. If you don't believe that Jesus is enough, why worship Him? I mean, if you make it into heaven, I mean, y'all are both going to be partly responsible. It's not a God worthy of worship. But when you're secure in Christ and His great salvation, it gives you the liberty to worship and live for God out of a motivation of love and gratefulness towards Him. Now listen, I know I've probably used this ace card a few times already in this message. I'm going to use it one last time. If y'all don't hear anything else, you need to hear what I'm about to say. This is where the world's crowd, this is where the cults, this is where the works-based systems get it so horribly wrong. They think that if someone isn't scared to death, that they will be shunned or in danger of hell, they won't serve God. What a selfish motivation to serve God. (laughs) What a selfish motivation. So I can be blessed. I'm going to live for God so I can be blessed in this life and stay out of hell in the next life. Do you think that's an honorable reason to serve God? They think the cults and the works-based systems, they think that is the only reason that somebody would ever give any kind of effort to serve God is a fear of what might happen to them if they don't. I serve Jesus Christ not because I'm trying to be saved, but because I am saved. I worship Him for who He is. He is the creator of the universe. He's an eternal God. He wasn't created. He wasn't born. He's always existed in eternity past. He'll always be here in eternity future. He spoke the universe into existence by the words of His mouth. He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, God in the flesh, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life as the God-man. He fulfilled the just demands of God's law that you and I could never do. He died on the cross by His own creatures. They didn't take His life from Him. He gave it up. And then three days later, He rose from the dead. Forty days later, He ascended to the Father. And He is seated at the right hand of the Father doing His priestly work right now. How could you not worship that God? He demands worship because of who He is. If He never did one thing for us, He's worthy of worship because of who He is. Is the unchanging, immutable, holy, righteous, just, loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe, the sovereign monarch of the universe. And we're not going to worship that God. you got a different God, friend. God is not just concerned with what you do, but why you do it. I like what MacArthur said here. He said, The person who lives by faith works under the internal compulsion of love and does not need the outward compulsion of the law. Let me say this. If you go to church, go to church because you love Jesus Christ. If you sing songs unto Him, sing it because you love Jesus Christ and you want to worship Him. If you give to this church, you need to understand, you're not giving to this church, you're giving to the Lord. Do it 
because you love Jesus Christ. You know, in every church that I've ever pastored, including this one, I have told whoever handles the books, I don't want to see who, what people give because I don't want to get caught in that. I don't, you know, that's between you and God. Uh, I don't know what anybody gives. I've never known that. I don't want to know that. That's between you and God. And I don't want, listen, I don't want people to come to church because they're afraid I'm going to be showing up at their door, like, you know, doing the police knot, wondering where y'all are at, even though it would be fun sometimes. I, I don't want you to give because you're afraid that, you know, pastor's going to stand over your shoulder and go, <clears throat> I, I don't want you to sing songs just because everybody else is around you singing and that might be the thing to do. I, I mean, go, go share the gospel. Give tracts because you love Jesus Christ. Everything that you do, love your spouse. Serve your spouse because you love Jesus Christ. Forgive your neighbor. Forgive somebody that's hurt you for Christ's sake is what Paul said. Uh, you know, live everything that you do, do it to the glory of God and not because you're trying to check things off a list. It's so much bigger than that. So much better than that. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God because you love Him and not because you feel obligated. And if you do feel obligated and all those things are a burden to you, you need to ask yourself, why? Why is that? Why is that such a burden? What have I not seen? Why am I not motivated? There's a heart issue there. When you're enslaved by the bondage of false religion and ideologies, it robs you of your ability to serve God and others out of a motivation of love and liberty. What a burden. I couldn't trust grace to the point where I could actually be secure in my salvation and serve Him from that place of security. I'm not trying to earn brandy points with God. I'm just loving Him and worshiping for who He is and what He's done. I'm not working in order to be saved. I'm working because I am saved. But then lastly, and I'm done. This is a shorter one. We've seen what it costs us, the things we lose when we're afraid of grace. Lastly, we lose laughter. We lose laughter. Look at verse 7. You did run well. You're doing well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? This is the offense of the cross. Uh, then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were even cut off which trouble you. Now, <clears throat> what I'm about to point out to you we need to understand that Paul was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and realize that we need to be careful with the things that we say and do, especially concerning those that may be lost or those that may be confused. Jesus was always friendly to sinners, but He had a zero-tolerance policy for the false teachers that would enslave those sinners. And Paul is pleading with the Galatians yet again by using an athletic analogy. And he says, you were running well, who did hinder you? He didn't say what, he said who. And many times it is a who. And in the case of the Galatian believers, it was these Judaizers. They were the ones that hindered them, told them a lie about uh, salvation by keeping the law and distracted from the truth of the gospel of grace. Um, if it's not a person, it's certainly the prince of darkness. And after Paul encourages the Galatians to submit to the truth, 
he closes this section by making this statement. This is, this is literally what verse 12 says. Listen, I'm not trying to get graphic here. I'm just telling you what Paul is saying in the context here. In verse 12, he is literally saying that I wish these Judaizers would castrate themselves. And you say, well, why in the world would Paul say that? And, and what relevance does it have to the text here? Well, th- th- when I'm talking about laughter, the reason I use the, the point laughter here is because Paul is so confident in the gospel of grace. And he is so confident in Jesus Christ and His finished work that he is literally mocking these false teachers. He is taking their theology and he is taking it to the logical conclusion of where it ends up. And here's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, well, you know, if, if circumcision makes you right with God, why don't you just castrate yourself? That's what he's saying. I mean, if, if circumcision makes you right with God, then castration must make you really right with God. He's telling the Galatian believers, he said, look at these liberal Judaizers. They, they, won't, even, they won't even back up what they're saying. They need to either put up or shut up. If, castra- if circumcision makes you right with God, just go the rest of the way and be a man about it. That's what he's literally saying. And they ain't about to do that because that ain't right. It doesn't make you any more right with God than circumcision does or any other work that we could do. But that is literally what he said. He is laughing at their belief system. This, this sarcastic tone he's made. You know, they've made him out to sound like a liberal, Paul, for, for teaching the gospel of grace. Now he's going to turn the tables and make them to be a liberal because they're not manning up on their own theology here. That's literally what he's saying. And so um, when we fear God, we don't have to fear anything or anyone else. But when we don't fear and love God, we will be easily afraid of other things, especially if somebody can make us afraid that we're going to go to hell when we die, or that we're not going to be with God when we die. Are you afraid of grace this morning? Are you afraid of laying your eternity, laying your very soul at the feet of Jesus Christ and walking away in freedom? You need to repent of your sin, repent of your self-effort, repent of your dead works, and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Listen, false religions, they say that good, do good works and God will love you. The gospel says, in Christ you are loved. Now go do good works. It's a huge difference. The gospel of grace says, in Christ you are loved. Now go and do good works. Are you trusting in your works because you're afraid of grace? Or have you been saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ and His finished work. There is an eternity's worth of difference in those two things. Are you saved this morning? Do you know beyond any shadow of doubt that you know God, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and that you'll be in heaven when you leave this world?